Men, saints, our scripture reading this morning comes again from Colossians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 17, so give careful attention to the reading now of God's holy word. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and... If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen? Amen. You may be seated and let's pray together as we come once again to God's holy word. Our God and our Father, as we come to this word that is eminently practical and applicable to our lives this morning, we pray that you would help us once again to understand the source of these things, the source of these virtues, how it is that we might put to death what is earthly in us and these deeds of the flesh that are listed here, and how it is that we might put on these virtues, these qualities of Christ and his own life, because, Father, we are in him, buried with him in baptism and raised up with him to newness of life. Our lives are hidden with him in you. And so, Father, give us wisdom, give us grace, give us strength, give us conviction by these words to continue to take our thoughts captive and to mortify the sin that remains in us and to grow and to thrive in the holiness that honors Christ and causes us, Father, to be conformed to the image of His glory. So may the words of my mouth 
And may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John Chrysostom, who was one of the fathers of the early church period, 2,000 or so years ago, wrote that when the animals who had come on to Noah's Ark, when those animals went back out of Noah's Ark, after the flood waters had receded, those animals that had come onto the Ark went off of the Ark, came out of the Ark in exactly the same way that they had come in, right? The, the fox went into the Ark as a fox and it came out of the Ark as a fox, he says. The crow went in as a crow and came out as the same crow. There was no change. But, he said, those who enter into Christ, who is the ark of everlasting salvation, go in as one thing and come out another thing entirely. Isn't that what we've been studying here in Colossians chapter 3? The life that is completely transformed. Listen to Chrysostom's words. He says, Like unto a spiteful fox, that swindler entered into Christ, who built his house on the ruin of his competitors, but behold, he goes out more harmless than a lamb, willing to sacrifice his own interests for the sake of others. Or like a crow, that sinner entered into Christ's church uttering brackish noises, but now, behold, he goes out cooing like a dove. That impatient, quarrelsome man who made everyone sting who touched him like a porcupine came in bristling, but behold, he goes away like a loving spaniel gentle to the touch. And that's the truth of the Christian life, isn't it? That we've been meditating on together here in Colossians chapter 3. The Christian life, Paul proclaims in no uncertain terms, is a transformed life. It must be or else it is not the Christian life. It is a regenerated life. It is a life that in Christ has actually died and then been resurrected with Him and transformed by Him to be something utterly and completely new. And different. That's what the Christian life is. A, a life of miraculous transformation as we die to the reign and the dominion of sin. And as we're raised with Christ and new life in Him. As new creations united to Him through faith. In such a, an intimate way that all of the blessings of the heavenly places, Paul says, are lavished on us in Christ Jesus. And so our lives can't, can't but be transformed when that's the case. We're united to Christ in such a way that everything that Jesus is in his life of perfect holiness and obedience and love and everything that he did in his incarnation, in his life of holiness, in his death, in his resurrection, in his, his ascension into heaven, in his enthronement at the right hand of God, and even as we saw a couple weeks ago in his second coming in glory, everything about Christ in him, all of the merits, all of his work, shape us now and define us now and drive now the new life that we live in Him. And, and so, again, necessarily that means that the new life that is in Him is a life of growing and increasing transformation and sanctification. And if it's not, 
It's not the life that's in him. So here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul's talking about that transformation. And he's talking about it both in a negative sense, in terms of what needs to change, what, what was and needs to stop being, and in a positive sense in terms of what must be more and more. So he's saying, we, we saw this last time two weeks ago, that there are certain things that have got to be done away with now that we are in Christ. Sins that have to be given no quarter in our lives. They have to be put to death and nothing short of that. They have to be put off. That's another way that he, he phrases it here in verse 9, isn't it? These things have to be stripped away from us now and have no place in our lives Anymore, And then he goes on to say in the verses we're going to look at today in verses 12 through 14 that there are certain things that then have to be put on. Kind of like a metaphor of clothing, see? Now that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, we've got to strip away the clothing of the old life, the old man who was crucified in Christ, the old man who was in sin, who was in bondage to sin, under the dominion of sin, who was not in Christ. That old person, that old man, lived under the tyranny of the reign of sin. And when that was our life, there were certain, certain spiritual garments that characterized our lives, certain sinful attitudes and deeds. And we looked at them together last time. Things like sexual immorality in thought, and in deed, and in desire even. And things like anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and, and dishonesty. All of those things have to be killed, Paul says, put to death and stripped off of us like old filthy clothes. And then those old clothes have to be replaced with new clothes that are consistent with who we are now, with what we are now in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 11, Christ painted a miraculous and marvelous living historical example and illustration of this, didn't he? By raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had died. He hadn't just fainted. He wasn't just in a coma. He, he had died and they buried him in a tomb and he'd been in there for four days. That's a, in, in Jewish custom and by Jewish law, somebody had to be dead for three days to be considered dead see because oftentimes they thought somebody was dead but then a day or two later they'd wake back up they'd been in a coma something had happened like that but after three days nobody woke up until Jesus came Lazarus had died and he was buried in the tomb for four days another full day past what the laws and customs required to be sure that a person was really dead he had been in there long enough that his body was starting to smell from the decomposition, they said. Until Jesus came and said, with all of the divine power and authority of the God who he is, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus did. His body obeyed. His dead body obeyed the voice of its creator and sprang back to life. And Lazarus walked out of that tomb and when he came out, Jesus commanded that they strip away the grave clothes. Remember? The cloth that covered his face and the linen strips that bound up his body and his legs. 
You kind of picture it. it says his legs were bound, and so he's kind of hobbling out of, the, out of the tomb, and he said, strip all of that off of him. Why? Because those are grave clothes. They're only appropriate for the grave. They're only appropriate for death. Now Lazarus is not dead anymore. He's been raised to newly resurrected life, and those old clothes have to go so that he can put on clothes that are suitable for life. And this, see, that's this, the same exact kind of thing that Paul is talking about here in Colossians chapter 3. The spiritual garments of the old life, the grave clothes that we were all in bondage to and wrapped up in, which he listed here before. Those things were only suited for the life of spiritual death and separation from God that characterized us. And now they've got to go. And now that we've been raised to newness of life with Christ, there are new spiritual garments that have to be put on. And so, so talking about sinful thoughts and desires and sinful behaviors, that's why Paul says in verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in those things. Sin used to be the defining characteristic of our lives. But it must not be anymore. Now the dominion of sin has been ended by Christ. We've died to sin's dominion. And we've been raised to new life in Him, as new creations in Him, submitting now to His dominion, to His rule and reign over our lives. And so, verse 8, all those old things that we used to live and walk in, they've got to be put away. Because, verse 9, in Christ we have put off the old self along with all of its practices. And now, verse 10, in Christ we have put on the new self. The new creation in Him. Death, resurrection in Christ. Transformation. Regeneration. And that new self very simply needs new clothes. Put off is what we saw last time two weeks ago. Mortify sin. Put it to death. And now this week, put on new clothes. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, I mean, these are the things that we need to be dressed with now, that need to characterize us, that need to be the way that we represent ourselves to the world around us, that need to be what people see on us all the time. Humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven us, so we also must forgive. Those are the kinds of attitudes and, and thoughts and, and impulses and desires and behaviors of our lives that, that need to show that we are consistent with who we are as new creations in Christ Jesus. Since in Christ we have put off the old self and put on the new self, we got to live like what we are. That's the simple principle at stake in this text. And that's a regular theme all throughout the New Testament, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 4, this is how Paul says it. He says, you must no longer walk in the way that the Gentiles walk. And he means pagan people. He means unbelievers. He means unregenerate people, ungodly people who don't, haven't grown up building their lives on the foundation of the revealed Word of God. They've built their lives on the, on the foundation of corrupt and twisted worldly wisdom and their own sinful desires. And, and he says to Christians now, you can't live like that anymore. You must no longer walk as they do in the futility of their minds. 
They're darkened in their understanding. Those people are are alienated, he says, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They've become calloused. They're giving themselves up to sensuality and greed to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you've learned in Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Him to put off your old self. Same thing he's saying here in Colossians 3. Because the old self belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. But you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so it's easy to see, isn't it, what he's saying. Our identity has to define the way that we live. Simple as that. Our identity has to define the way that we live. We have to understand what we are, who we are in Christ. And become confident of that. And then our lives have to start more and more and more to reflect that reality. All the things that Paul listed last time in Colossians 3, all the sinful stuff, the attitudes, the desires, the behaviors, all that stuff that's got to be put to death, that need to be removed from us, like sexual immorality and evil desires and ungodly anger and slander and all of that stuff, those are all characteristics of the old self that was in bondage to sin. It's got no place. That was, all that stuff was the natural product of a life that's alienated from God. And of a, a heart that's calloused towards God. And of a mind that's darkened and, and ignorant in unbelief of God's word. So why would we keep living like that when that's not who we are anymore? Now that we've learned Christ and that old self has died and a new self has been raised and we have a new identity, our whole manner of life has to be brought into conformity with what we are now, alive to Christ. Our minds are not darkened anymore. Our hearts are not calloused anymore. We are not alienated from God anymore. And so we must live accordingly. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, You're a chosen, this is what you are. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. That's what you are. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's your identity. That's what you are now that you're in Christ Jesus and have been recreated in Him. You don't live for the purposes of, of self anymore. Now the entire purpose of your life has been redeemed back to what it was originally created in the image of God to be for the purpose of His glory. And so Peter says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He says, once you were not a people even, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy from God. That's what you are, so therefore I urge you, as sojourners and exiles in this world, you've got to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. You've got to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Don't act like them or they're not going to see the glory of God in you. Our 
Our change in identity has to affect a fundamental change in our manner of living. And if it doesn't, then the sin that we're allowing to remain in us undealt with is going to continue to have a corrupting and decaying influence on our lives. John MacArthur tells of an ancient custom in the Roman Empire in terms of a, a penalty for the crime of murder. Here's what they would do. One of the punishments for premeditated murder, not manslaughter, not even secondary, what we would call premeditated first-degree murder. So you plan it out, you lie in wait, and you go and you attack somebody and you kill them on purpose, right? The, the penalty was that they would sometimes take the guilty person, the murderer, and they would actually this is, this is morbid, I'm sorry, but it's what they would do sometimes. They would take the body of the victim and they would strap it to the guilty one, to the murderer. And he would have to carry that corpse around on him, on his back. And it would weigh him down and it would break him down. And as that body decayed, it would begin to cause the decay also of the body of the guilty one. It would infect his body. And cause it to begin to decompose and die. I mean, I'm sorry, that's really morbid, literally, but that's what they did. And what a vivid image that is, right? And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's, it's, it's something of what Paul is urging us to not do. As Christians now, now that we've been set free from the dominion of sin and we've died to sin in Christ, we've been raised with Christ, we can't keep on carrying around the body of sin on us, see? The body of death, it's got to be put off or else it will be killing us. It will be weighing us down and burdening us and breaking us down and, and decaying our lives. This is why John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And here in Colossians 3, Paul is picturing that truth and that reality with, with the metaphor of putting off. And, and putting something else on, like, like old clothes, taking them off and putting on new clothes, which are befitting of who we are now in Christ as new creations. And so having exhorted us to take off the sinful moral clothing of the old self, now in verse 12, he's giving us this urgent exhortation to put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. These are the kinds of moral garments, see? The kind of moral clothing that people, uh, the people of God need to be dressed up in, clothed with. This is what we need to be characterized by. When you put on clothes, uh, the attitude of our culture today about clothing is, is, is wrong, frankly. When you put on clothes, you're, you're doing something that is going to represent who you are and what you value and what's important to you to the rest of the world. And so one of the ways we love one another is how we dress around one another, right? And people who dress immodestly aren't loving one another because they're becoming a source of temptation and stumbling for one another. 
And if we want to bless one another and if we want to show one another what it is that matters to us, part of the way that we do that is in how we dress, how we present ourselves through our clothing. And Paul's simply saying that, that this needs to be your spiritual and your moral clothing. All of these kinds of characteristics. These are the, the garments that need to characterize your life and that, and that people need to look at and say, this is the kind of person you are. This is what's important to you. This is who you belong to as the people of God needs to be the outer manifestation of the inner transformation that has occurred in Christ Jesus. And, and notice that at the beginning of verse 12 there, this exhortation to, to put on, the exhortation is framed by the context of our election. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Notice that. That's the that's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 where he says that God chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Let, let alone before we were ever born in the world. God chose us. Right? Remember what Paul says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Chose us to do what? Chose us in him that we should be what? That, Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us for that. God elected us for that. Before the foundations of the world, before we were ever a gleam in our mother's eye, before our mothers ever existed, before anything ever existed, God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. That's amazing. That's astounding. As we seek to understand our new identity in Jesus Christ, one of the things that's most imperative for us to understand is that in Christ we are the elect of God, sovereignly chosen by Him from before the foundations of the world were ever laid. What a, that's a humbling reality, isn't it? For one thing, it means we can't take any credit at all for who and what we are in Christ. It's not as if God looked at all of fallen sinful humanity and, and saw great potential in some of us and chose to save the ones who had the greatest potential or the ones who displayed the best efforts towards holiness or the ones who had accomplished the most personal righteousness well those are the head of the class so I'm going to choose them to be my representatives in the world and to reflect my glory to the world now I, this was before eternity passed God had a plan he has chosen he has elected he has selected certain sinners to save by his grace alone through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone apart from works apart from anything we did or didn't do apart from anything in us in spite of all the unrighteousness and, and sinfulness that, that characterized all of us. God's had a plan that predated all of us and existed before we ever did. A plan that existed in his mind and his purpose and his sovereign will before anything outside of him existed at all. And I honestly, when I think about that, I have absolutely no idea whatsoever why why, in God's eternal plan and purpose, why did he choose to redeem me from my sin and not someone else? I don't know. 
It's got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with him and his glory and his love and his great purposes and his ways that are higher than my ways. And it just makes, that should make us just rejoice in sovereign mercy. There was nothing about us and yet he chose us and he saved us and he purposed and he planned in order to save us from our sins and that plan included not just a plan to save us from the consequences of our sins, whereby we would spend an eternity in hell, suffering apart from his glory because of our sins. The plan involved even more than that. The plan of God involved his sovereign purpose not only to save us from the consequence of sin, but also from the bondage of sin, also from the dominion of sin, also from the influence of sin. In our lives, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's what the plan included. That's what God's purposed since before we even existed. The ultimate plan of redemption wasn't just my forgiveness, my justification. It was my sanctification. It was my holiness in my life. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that no one may boast, because we are His, what? Workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's the whole purpose of our lives. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So see, holiness has always and eternally been God's sovereign purpose for you, Christian. It's not just what he's always been hoping for in you. It's what he sovereignly elected you unto. You are his workmanship. We all, if we are in Christ, are his workmanship. And so see, to keep on living in sin to keep wearing the sinful fleshly clothing of the old self, to keep on giving ourselves permission to indulge in whatever sinful desire it is and say, well, it's okay because Jesus died for it and a little bit doesn't matter and it's not going to hurt anybody and everybody sins and it's inevitable and sin will always remain in me so I don't need to worry about this. To keep on living like that is to walk and to live in a way that is fundamentally contrary, not only to what you are, but to the eternal sovereign purposes of God for your life. And that's a big deal. That's sobering. You don't want to live contrary, not just to His will, not just to His pleasure. That's, that's bad enough. But see, every time we sin, every time we yield to temptation, every time we give ourselves permission, and that we bow to our own sinful, selfish, me-oriented desires. Every moment we do that is a moment that we're, we're cutting directly against the grain of God's sovereign, eternal purposes for our holiness. And I don't know about you, but that's sobering to me. That perspective helps put me in my place and see the massive arrogance that undergirds the sin which I allow to remain in my life and that I don't deal with and that I don't repent of and that I don't address in my life. Who do I think I am as this little speck of dust on this little planet 
in this vast universe. In spite of the fact that God has chosen me and elected me for holiness and I'm going to keep on sinning? Contrary to his purposes that were set in motion before the foundations of the world. We are God's chosen ones. We are holy, he says in verse 12. We are saints. We are sanctified, past tense, in the sense of our status and standing before God. That's what we are in Christ Jesus, set apart for God. That's what we are in Christ Jesus. We're holy unto the Lord. That's what we have to consider ourselves to be. We're a people whose sins have been fully covered and paid for because we're beloved by Him and we are His workmanship and we have to live like it now. So let us walk according to what we are and according to God's holy and eternal and sovereign purposes and for God's glory in our lives. That's what Paul's talking about here. And so he says, based on who we are in Christ Jesus, based on God's sovereign elective purposes for us in Christ, Having put off the old self with all of its sinful garments, here's what we have to put on. First, verse 12, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. If anyone has the old King James version, it reads, bowels of mercy instead of hearts of compassion. You know why the King James says bowels instead of hearts? It's because that's the Greek word that Paul uses. And that's what it literally means. And you know why Paul chose that word? Bowels instead of hearts? Intestines? Your gut? Because the ancient Greeks understood that in the connection between our emotional and our our physical selves, when something impacts us emotionally, we very often feel it physically. And where do we feel it very often? We feel it in our gut, right? If you're stressed, you feel it in your gut, and it affects your gut. If you feel sorrow, you feel it there in your gut. It causes a a, a painful sensation right there in the region of your intestines, doesn't it? And so this is why the Greeks just, they, they referred to the source of their emotions. We say hearts, they say gut. They say bowels because literally that's where they felt it. And so here in verse 12, this is, see, this is the word Paul uses for compassion, And he's saying, see, that as new creations in Christ, we need to be people who are cultivating a deep gut-level compassion for one another. What's the word compassion mean? Compassion. It means to suffer with someone, right? It means to feel with someone what they're feeling. That when they're going through a hard time, When they're in agony, when they're suffering, somehow there's a connection between us that makes me feel that. That's what compassion is. It means to be so focused on someone else. It means to have our focus so outward, so away from self, that what's happening to that person impacts me more than what's happening to me. And when when that's happening, what does that lead to? When you can feel what they feel, when you really have that compassion, when you really have that sympathy, what does that lead? It leads to kindness, see? An inner sense of compassion for what someone else is going through drives an outward manifestation of kindness. That's how those two things are connected. And kindness just means 
doing things that are intentionally designed to, to help and to, to benefit, to bless other people. And I, I've known people who have tried to make the excuse and say, well, I just haven't been given the gift of kindness by God. Well, it's not a gift that God gives. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And it's an attribute of every Christian life in Christ. It must be and it must be cultivated. If you're struggling to be kind, the reason is because you're lacking compassion. And the reason that we lack compassion is that we're focused on ourselves and not on others. We're focused far too inwardly and not enough outwardly, pure and simple. If you can't feel what somebody else is going through more intensely than you're feeling what you want, it's because you're concerned with yourself more than you're concerned with them. And then from that comes an absence of kindness. Now, Paul is saying in Christ, we've got to learn to become so focused on one another that what the other person is going through impacts us. And at such a gut level that it's regularly driving acts of, uh, of self-sacrificing, other-oriented kindness from us. The kind of kindness that doesn't just give something in order to get something back. He's talking about costly kindness here. He's talking about sacrificial kindness here. Self-forsaking, rights-denying kindness. Which is what? That's Christ-like kindness, right? That's what Paul's commanding here. That's what drove Christ to come here, isn't it? Because he is a compassionate Savior. Because he feels our plight. Because he knows we're alienated from God. He knows we're lost. He knows that the wrath of God pours down from heaven upon all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And that was us. And he knew what we would suffer. And he felt compassion for us. And so he came here to take it upon himself in order to remove it from us, to be kind to us. And so we must be with one another. And see, this is, this is actually profoundly significant in the ancient world where people were only valued based on what they could contribute to the greater society. And that, by the way, is becoming more and more a problem in our society again, isn't it? People weren't valued just by the fact that they were people. Human beings made in the image of God. They were... They were seen as commodities and they were seen as cogs in the greater system and they were valued simply based on what they could give to the system. So no provision was made for poor people because they don't do anything. Crippled people suffered alone with no help or aid because they can't contribute. Mentally handicapped people, they were cast off. They were, they were left to just wither on their own. The invalid, the elderly, they were despised in this society that Paul's writing to here. They would often just be left to die on their own, outside the walls of the city. Well, see, Jesus Christ came into that world, into a world that knew very, very little of sympathy and compassion and, and kindness for those kinds of people, for the least among us. And this is what he's commanding. He's commanding this gut-feeling kind of compassion from us. He wants us to be so focused on the good of others that we cultivate a deep feeling that, that, that literally hurts of concern for their needs, even if then meeting their needs in kindness isn't going to get us anything in return. 
And so the question becomes, is that what characterizes us, right? Is this what we look like? Is this what we're clothed with? Does this, does this mark our friendships and our relationships in the body of Christ? What, do, what about our marriages? Is your relationship to your spouse marked by this kind of compassion and kindness? Or is it the kind of giving that's only in order to get? What about with your kids that are hard sometimes, right? And they wear you down and they wear you out. And sometimes you're giving and giving and giving and they're not, they're not giving much back. Is your heart full of compassion and kindness towards them? What about the lost out there in the world? Those who don't know Christ, those who suppress the truth, those who live their lives in unrighteousness. Do we have a compassion for them like Christ had for us when he came to seek and save us when we were lost? Paul goes on and admonishes us there in verse 12 to be, to be clothed with humility. And what's interesting about that word in the New Testament is that humility is always, in God's word, commended, right, as a good thing. But in the Greek culture, again, it was not. Humility was not a, a virtue at all. This word that the New Testament uses was not considered to be a good thing. Originally, it was just a word that meant, that meant defeat. You went out to be courageous. You went out to accomplish a good goal of justice, and you lost as a soldier. You suffered defeat. That's what this word humility means. It meant shame. It meant servitude, and it was decidedly negative in its connotation. But Paul's commanding us to be clothed with it. Because, see, we come into this world in service to self and fighting battles for the sake of self. And humility means laying all that aside. All of the weapons that we use in order to gain success and victory for self, all of the armor that we put on in order to assure that we don't get hurt, again, like Christ, we strip all of that away from ourselves. We put all of it off as he took on human flesh as a fragile infant child and became a human and a servant, humble to the point of death on a cross. That's what Paul's commanding. You've got to forsake self. You've got to divest yourself of self. You've got to divest yourself of being primarily concerned with your own rights and your own needs and your own desires. Consider the needs of others as more important than your own. We've got to condescend like Jesus did to one another. Stoop down like Jesus did. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's that kind of thing that humility means. And all too often our sinful flesh resonates more with the, with the instincts of that old Greek culture which saw humility as a bad thing. It saw humility as weakness. It saw humility as defeat. And we say, well, I can't be humble because, because then I'm being weak. But see, God's word defines a kind of courage and a kind of strength that's not marked by pride and self-importance. It's actually, and it's not in, in opposition to humility, it's actually characterized by humility. And other-oriented, self-sacrificing humility, again, like Jesus. 
because he was humble, he was highly exalted. Because he was divinely humble, he exhibited omnipotent strength to save. And that's what we need to be like. That blends right into the next word that Paul mentions, which is the word meekness. Meekness. And when you think of meekness, you must not think of weakness. Meekness doesn't mean coward, cowardliness. Meekness doesn't mean spinelessness. Sometimes like it's represented in our culture. A meek person is a weak person. That's not what the word means. Meekness isn't the opposite of courage. It doesn't mean refusing to take a stand for the cause of justice or, or to be in defense of others. If there's an injustice in this world, cowardice in response to injustice, that's, that's just another form of self-interest, isn't it? Why are people cowardly when, when there's an injustice? It's because their cowardice is, is, is a prioritization of self-interest. I don't want to stand in defense of this person because I might get hurt. And so they put self-preservation above the protection of others. But see, true courage seeks to rescue those who are being taken away to death, like Proverbs 24 says. It seeks to hold back those who are stumbling towards the slaughter, even when that means a risk to self. I'm willing to incur some, some serious costs to myself here in order to defend somebody else out there who's being exposed to injustice. But see, meekness is the other side of that same coin, of selfless concern for others. Meekness just means I'm more willing to suffer injury than I'm willing to inflict injury. That's all meekness means. Meekness means if I'm in a conflict with you, if someone's going to get hurt in this conflict, let it be me so it doesn't have to be you. Isn't that what Jesus did? When we were at enmity with him and the wrath of God was ready to pour out from heaven against us, the wrath of the God who he is. And so he said, I'd rather bear that wrath upon myself than you have to bear it. And so he came here and took it on the cross. That's meekness and courage and strength in a glorious way. This is the quality that Jesus was commanding in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught that truly following him means turning the other cheek, right? Giving away your tunic to the one who takes your cloak. If they steal your outer garment, you say, well, they must be cold. Maybe they need this one too. I'd rather, they, I'd rather I suffer than that they have to suffer. He also mentions patience, and we saw that word several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 13 as a fundamental property of of godly love. The word patience literally means long-suffering, right? It means when somebody is difficult, they're needy. And they're, they, they tend to be kind of clingy. And they tax us. They're hard for us. They, they, they cost us. And the thing that will determine whether we're long-suffering with them or short-suffering, whether we're patient with them or quickly grow impatient, again, is whether our focus is primarily on self, our own interests, or more on theirs. What do they need? And does that weigh more in the scales to us 
then what is it costing me? Impatience comes from self-interest, period. Patience, long-suffering, doesn't depend on the other person being easy. If it's about the other person being easy, then it's no suffering. If you just surround yourself with people that are easy, then, then you don't have long-suffering, you don't have patience, you just have no suffering. Jesus doesn't call us to, to live lives of, of no suffering, right? He doesn't call us to a ministry of no suffering, does he? No, he doesn't. Patience depends on us being more concerned with them and their needs than with ourselves and our own desires. And so it means bearing with one another, as he says in verse 13, enduring the things about one another that are tough. That's what it means. And it's long-suffering. So it's not a question of whether I exercise patience with a, a difficult person or circumstance for, for a little while. It's a question of whether I endured this person or this circumstance for the long term because God has certainly been long suffering with me hasn't he and so in my life it's got to be a question of whether when things are hard I'm long suffering over days over weeks over months over years and Paul says long suffering is a fundamental quality of holiness it's an intrinsic characteristic of the new life in Christ. If, if you don't have that, then whatever you're calling holiness is seriously deficient. And then at the end of verse 13, he says, and notice, notice that this word forgiving is in the form of a participle. It ends in ing. That's how we signal it in, in English. Forgiving one another when we have a complaint against someone. And the, the fact that this is a that forgiving is a participle, it's linking it up to the prior exhortation of patience. If you're patient, you will be forgiving. Patience means forgiving. True patience, true long-suffering, where we truly bear with one another, even when we have legitimate complaints against the other person, necessarily produces genuine forgiveness. So in Christ, we don't just put up with one another. In Christ, we don't just tolerate and endure one another. In Christ, we forgive one another when there are offenses against one another. That's the response of the new creation in Christ, the sins of others towards us, because that was Christ's response to us. The person who is being patient and long-suffering is the person, definitionally, who is forgiving Again, because that's precisely how God has been towards us in Christ. And this is interesting. Right there in Paul's words in the, in the Greek test, right after the word forgiving is this little pronoun in Greek, hueotos, which is, it, it's a reflexive pronoun. It, it, it reflects back on itself. So literally, Paul says, forgiving yourselves. But he doesn't mean me forgiving myself. He doesn't mean you forgiving yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's talking in a corporate manner. It's plural. As the church, as the body of Christ, we are united together. We are members together of Christ's body. And the church must be a forgiving church. We must always be forgiving ourselves as the church or one another in the church. 
A body of interconnected members in Christ has to be patient and forgiving of each other in Christ because what unites us together in Him is His forgiveness of us, and we've got to be giving that to one another. Always and constantly. And as we are in Him, it's His compassion. It's His kindness. It's His humility. It's His meekness. It's His patience. It's His forgiveness that has to define and and drive and enable all of those things in us. You can't do it on your own. You can't charge off down the highway after the sports car on your own two legs. You'll never catch it or match its speed. You have to be in Christ who is all these things. Communing with Him regularly. Abiding in Him. Abiding in His Word and it in you. And Him in you regularly, constantly for these things to start to become the characteristics of your life. Outside of Christ and left to ourselves and our own strength and our own resolve, any ability that we have to imitate Christ is nil. And a list like this one of the positive qualities that we have to put on, if we're outside of Christ, this isn't a very encouraging list. This isn't a list, if we're honest, that we say, yeah, I can do all that stuff. I can be long-suffering with the most difficult people in my life and forgive them constantly. You can't. You can tolerate them. You can endure them. You can put up with them. And you can find ways to avoid them. But you can't be long-suffering and forgiving unless you're in Christ. Same thing with the negative list. You can't really deal with all that, and you can't put to death all those sinful temptations and desires unless you're in Christ. So, How do we clothe ourselves with these things? Only in Christ who is all these things. You'll never pull it off just by imitation, see? You'll never pull it off just by trying in your best strength and according to your best resolve to be like Christ. You can only do it by being in Christ. And in Him, setting our minds on the things that are above, repenting of and mortifying our own selfish ambition and fleshly idolatry and sin, taking it all to the cross like we talked about a couple weeks ago and drawing near to the throne of grace to find the strength that we need in our times of need, which is always, that's how we'll be able to put on the garments of the new creation. Only that. Only in Christ. Only in communion with Him. In verse 14, Paul says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, so compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. Paul says these are all the garments of the new self, of the new creation. And, he, and he's picturing somebody wearing first century garments, not the kinds of garments we wear today. First century garments were like robes and cloaks that hung down and, and flowed around your waist and your legs. And, and in order for you to go out and work, you needed to tie it all together somehow so you wouldn't get tripped up by all of that extra material. And the thing that binds it all together, that ties it all together, and makes it all work in your life is love, Paul says. That's what ties it all together. Love focused on someone else. Love that says I'm more concerned with their needs than my own. Love that says I'm willing to meet their needs even at great cost to myself. Love that says 
I'm willing to be Christ to them. Ties it all together. That's where it all flows from. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the greatest virtue. Faith, hope, and love remain, and the greatest of these is love. Remember in Galatians 5, which we also looked at recently, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, and what's the first one? Love. Love is the headwaters. Love is the fountain out of which all the rest flows. And so here he's saying, as people who are in Christ, as people who have died to sin and been raised and reborn and regenerated, once you get all the right clothes on that are required for this new life, it's love that ties it all together. Because without love, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? You're nothing. Without love, all our speech, even if it's the tongues of angels, is just noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Without love, all our best deeds, all our knowledge, all our faith, all our good works, all our ministries, nothing, worth nothing. Here it's the same thing. Apart from love, this whole list of virtues just becomes a bunch of legalistic, moralistic, self-serving attitude. These are things that we cannot just generate on our own. It's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul's talking about. And, and fruit is, is fruit, right? It's what the Spirit produces in us as we walk in Him, as we set our minds on the things that are above, as we embrace our identity in Christ and yield and surrender and submit to His life being formed in us. Fruit is what gets born. You, you can't produce this on your own. Fruit doesn't appear on a vine. Fruit doesn't appear on the branches of a tree by, by its own effort, right? The apples aren't, aren't over there huffing and puffing and breaking a sweat, trying real hard to push themselves out. That's not how that works. They're fruit. They get produced when the, fir, when the tree is, is firmly rooted and well-watered and sufficiently nourished. So are you? Are you firmly rooted? Are you well-watered? Are you sufficiently nourished? Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. Are you rooted in Him? And the love and the joy and the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness. That's all the fruit that gets born out of us as we're abiding in Christ and He's abiding in us. You've got to abide. If we're abiding in Him, then we're dwelling in a constant state of awareness that we're sinners, that we're saved by His grace, and that every moment that we live is a moment that we're living utterly dependent on His redeeming, transforming love. If you're not thinking about that in a moment, what you're thinking about is the old natural instinct that, that says, I got this. And, and what I want and what my desires are and my instincts and my strength and my, that's what I need and that's what I'm going to do and I got this. Unless you're abiding in Christ, that's what you're doing. Unless you're walking in step with the Spirit, you are walking in step with the flesh. You've got to constantly be reminding yourself and taking your sin to the cross and letting the love of Christ, which bore your shame... Forge in you a love for him who first loved us. So his love, his life being formed in us on a regular, ongoing basis. That's where it all comes from. All the compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and the rest. And if you look at your life and those things are lacking or, 
when you look at your life and those things are lacking, when you're not dressed with the qualities of Christ, it's because instead of abiding in Christ, you've been abiding in self. It's as simple as that. Your focus is too inward. You're setting your mind on the things of the earth. Your attention is dominated by self, self-interest and the cares of this world. Do you need to put on compassion? Do you lack compassion? Then you need to abide in Christ. You need to cover yourself with His great compassion towards you. Do you need to put on kindness? Then you need to wrap yourself in the unfathomable kindness of Jesus who shed His own blood to take away the wrath of God from you. And you need to saturate your mind and your heart with that reality. Do you lack humility? Then you need to drape yourself in the humility of Jesus who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant for you. Do you need meekness? Is that that quality lacking in your life? Then let his meekness cover you, cover you who who was despised and broken and crushed for you. What about patience? Well, can you robe yourself in the long suffering grace and mercy and love of God? Forgiveness, adorn yourself with the gospel of his grace, whose blood covers all your sin, and hear the voice of your Savior say, I don't condemn you. Can you then say that to someone else? This is what it means. Abide in Christ constantly. Commune with Christ constantly. As we come together today to the communion table, this is what we're doing. We're setting our minds on him fixing our minds on His cross. We're abiding, we're we're drawing near to Him that we might receive the grace and the mercy that we desperately need all the time in order to be clothed in Him. So let's pray together as we prepare to do that even here today at the table. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, this is challenging for us, it's convicting for us, and we give you praise for that. We give you praise for the fact that your word is truly a double-edged sword and that it penetrates down and shows us all of the ways that we are not measuring up to your glory and to your love and to the great humble strength and glory of Christ. But your Father, your word doesn't just leave us there. It also shows us where we need to go and what we need to do and where the strength comes from and what the true food and drink are to nourish and quench our souls so that we can grow and put off sin and put on these virtues of Christ. And so, Father, we come to you today and we ask that you would help us to abide in Christ and Him in us, and His Word in our hearts, and help us focus, Father, to set our minds on the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at Your right hand, to help us know what we are and who we are in Him, and to help us be overwhelmed, even as we come to this table today, with His great love, and with His great mercy, with His great forgiveness, with His patience towards us, with His meekness and humility towards us, so that, Father, we might have compassion for those who are in our lives as He has had compassion for us. And so, Father, we come to rest in Him. And we come to put our hope in Him. And we come to feed on Him. 
in terms of the true food and the true drink that his grace and his word and his strength and his life and his power are. So feed us and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's set our